0: Today on the Matt Walsh Show, we are suffering from a crisis of masculinity in our culture and it's only getting worse as anyone who tries to speak up for men inevitably gets silenced. We'll talk about all of this and how it relates to the Andrew Tate phenomenon today. Also, the Kevin McCarthy saga enters another day, but does any of this really matter? not really. Students at a university complain about my dangerous presence in bias incident reports that have been made public, and they are just wonderful. We'll read through some of them today. And the media has spent all week denouncing football for its violence. But I'll explain why violent sports are actually a good and necessary part of society. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. If you're someone who has always wanted to read and understand the Bible, but you're not sure where to start, then check out the Bible in a Year podcast from Ascension. The Bible in a Year podcast is currently the most popular religion podcast in the U.S. Millions of people have listened to it, and twice it's hit the number one spot on Apple Podcasts. In the Bible in a Year, Father Mike Schmitz reads the entire Bible in 365 daily episodes, providing helpful commentary, reflections, and prayers along the way. What better way to start the new year than this? You can find the Bible in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz for free in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. Plus, you can follow along with a special reading plan to help you better understand the story. Unlike any other Bible podcast, Bible in a Year follows a special reading plan that organizes the books of the Bible in a way that helps listeners understand the story. You can get this reading plan at ascensionpress.com slash walsh. If you want to start reading and more importantly understanding the Bible this year, go to ascensionpress.com slash walsh to download the reading plan for free. That's ascensionpresscom slash Walsh to download the reading plan for free. Today, I want to begin by talking about the crisis of masculinity in our culture, because that is what we're facing. There is an epidemic of confused, directionless, depressed, broken young men. And it's incredibly clear to me that this is rooted largely, though not solely, in a scarcity of male role models, specifically a catastrophic lack of present devoted fathers in the home. This crisis is also driven by, while at the same time helping to create, a culture that is deeply hostile to young men, a culture which seems dedicated to demoralizing them and preying on their weaknesses. And this problem is very personal to me because I have two sons with two more to be born sometime in the next couple of weeks, if not a couple of days, which means I will eventually be sending four young men off into this cultural void. And so I spend much of my day every day thinking about how to prepare them for it. That is also the lens through which I view the Andrew Tate phenomenon. Andrew Tate, of course, is the former kickboxer turned social media personality who rose to prominence as a voice of the so-called manosphere with a message directed primarily at young men. And over time, he amassed a, a large and devoted following within that group, but not really becoming widely known outside of that demo until big tech decided all at once several months ago to kick him off of every platform. And they did this ostensibly on charges that Tate expresses outrageous and objectionable views, allegedly, which they decided no one should be allowed to say, and more importantly, no one should be allowed to hear. But not for the first time, however, the the effort to erase and unperson someone only had the opposite effect of making them more influential and more famous and better known than than they'd ever been before. I could say in my case, um, I'm one of, I think, probably millions of people who before they erased him from everything, I, I, I'm not sure I'd ever even heard his name before. So I became acquainted with him because they were trying to suppress him. Which was a positive result, in my view. If for no other reason than the fact that the censors and deplatformers deserve to have their efforts backfire in such spectacular fashion. So anytime they try to cancel someone and that that person becomes more famous, I'm happy. Because they deserve, they, the the cancelers and uh, and. uh The platformers deserve to have that result. Now, the most recent update on Tate is that he was arrested last week by Romanian authorities on charges of sex trafficking. He says that this is simply just another attempt by the powers that be to punish and silence him. Meanwhile, the powers that be say that he raped and sexually exploited multiple women. That's what he's accused of. Now, as for my opinion on the man, I I can say nothing about the criminal charges. I simply have no idea whether he's guilty or not. His accusers will have to prove his guilt in a court of law. Um, When it comes to the less serious matter of his allegedly offensive opinions, I would say that some of his opinions are indeed objectionable in my view, though certainly not deserving of censorship. While some of his opinions are not only correct, but insightful and important. He's a human being, in other words, not right all the time, not wrong all the time. I tend to concur with Ben Shapiro's take on Andrew Tate, as he expressed in his podcast a few days ago. Tate is very often good at identifying some of the problems especially as they pertain to the situation that men face in the culture. So for example, here's a video you posted on his Twitter page a few days ago, cut from an earlier interview with Tucker Carlson. And this is an example of the good stuff. Uh, let's listen to that.
1: Tell us what your message is to young men. Yeah, so I think that being a man is very, very
0: difficult. I think that men's issues are largely overlooked. A lot of young men growing up today that feel very disaffected, they feel invisible. The agendas that are being forced down their throats are not agendas they align with, or they feel affinity to, or agendas they want. And I basically just say to men, look, it's a very hard life. You're gonna need to get up, work hard, go to the gym, strong body is a strong mind. You're gonna have to reject listening blindly to everything you're told, reject the slave mind, think for yourself, get a strong network of brothers, work aside them. Don't tolerate low quality people in your life which means don't tolerate men who just smoke drugs and play video games, and try and build and create a reality full of high-quality people in which you can resist the programming that The Matrix tries to uh, influence you with and grow up truly happy. Now, all that is true. It's good that he's saying it. It's also enough on its own to get you deplatformed. You don't need to say anything more offensive, quote-unquote, than what you just heard in that clip to earn the ire of the left and of our cultural elites. But where Tate goes off the rails is in the remedy that he suggests. Now, some of his prescriptions are reasonable and correct. Go to the gym, work hard, uh, build networks, be around high-quality people. I mean, these are all, I don't disagree on on any of those counts. Yet he also brags about sleeping with many different women. He promotes a kind of ostentatious materialism, saying that the best way to be a manly man is to make a lot of money and buy fancy cars and show off your wealth. He says things like this tweet a couple of weeks ago. He he, uh, tweeted this. Genghis Khan had endless women and 200 children as reward for conquest. I am the most searched man on the planet. I have conquered Earth. I am the highest status male on the planet. Females do not expect loyalty from me. They only expect that of lesser men. Now, this is not masculinity. An over-the-top, blustering kind of ego declaring yourself to be the highest status man on the planet. This is a sign of insecurity, not strength. I mean, Anytime you feel the need to announce to the public, especially on social media, how great you are, Um, every single time you are doing that because you are insecure. No secure person ever feels the need to do that. No man comfortable with his status feels the need to brag about his status. Worst of all, Tate suggests that loyalty is a virtue of lesser men, which could not possibly be more wrong. Any man can be disloyal, okay? Anyone can be disloyal. Any man, especially if he has a lot of money, can sleep with a bunch of different women and discard them. In fact, any man with not a lot of money can still do the same if he's willing to you know, go out and buy the affections of a $2 hooker for a few minutes. That's, that's not impressive, much less a sign of masculine strength. Real masculinity and also real joy and contentment in life is found in the man who remains loyal and devoted to his family. This is not only the more difficult path, but it's the more rewarding path by far on both counts. Loyalty and humility are both virtues of the truly masculine man, and yet they are virtues that Andrew Tate explicitly militates against. Like, he's against those things, and will say so. So while he gives young men some good and important advice, he he still winds up leaving them, ultimately, where they began, which is stranded, alone, confused. But the real question that we should be asking in regards to Andrew Tate isn't whether he's right or wrong about everything he says. Rather, the more important question, the more interesting one to me, is why his message resonates to begin with. This is the thing the left never stops to consider because every time, and Andrew Tate is certainly not the first, won't be the last, every time a new figure comes along with a message directed at men, okay, our cultural overlords will swoop in immediately to discredit, destroy, and silence that person. Every single time, these self-appointed gatekeepers have never met a man with a message for men who they didn't find problematic and misogynistic. That's because while Tate may veer off in various wrong directions, as far as his critics on the left are concerned, there is no direction he could take the message that they wouldn't consider dangerous and toxic. Well, there is one. I mean, if he was preaching a gospel of self-loathing to men, if he was telling young men to hate themselves and apologize for being who they are, if he was talking about toxic masculinity, then they would shower him with praise. They'd give him a doctorate, you know, and uh, and, uh, he'd have a book deal. He'd get glowing interviews on Good Morning America. That is the only thing anyone is allowed to say to men. If you're addressing men specifically, okay, in the public sphere, if you're saying, hey, men, and then you continue to have a message for them. The only acceptable message, as far as our culture is concerned, is shame on you. Stop being that way. Be more like a woman. And that's precisely why Andrew Tate and guys like him resonate. And they find such an enthusiastic and devoted following. They are speaking to men in a way that isn't resentful, isn't accusatory, isn't condescending. And they are among the only people on the national stage doing that. So the audience naturally goes to them, to the guy who isn't spitting in their face. It kind of makes sense. And as I said at the beginning, a huge percentage of young men are raised in homes where there is no fatherly role model. Often isn't a father present at all. And and in so many other cases, there might be a father physically present in the home, but he's not present emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. He's not present in any other way. He's just there. He's a lump on a log. So they're not taught how to be men, how to harness their masculinity, how to constructively use all of the energy and aggression that's brimming inside of them. Out in society, they're greeted with accusations and scorn, and they're told that they must suppress their masculinity, feminize themselves. Then a guy like Andrew Tate comes along and says, no, it's good to be a man. It is good to be tough and strong and masculine. They prefer to listen to him. And they are justified in preferring him, considering the alternatives. The correct response to Andrew Tate, then, isn't to silence him and condemn his followers. It is instead to say, yes, he's right. It is indeed good to be a man. And then to follow that with a better and clearer vision of what it means to be a man and how a man should behave, what his roles and duties are, what direction he should go. Because that's what these young men are looking for. They're looking for direction and guidance. If you don't have that to offer, then just step to the side. They're much better off listening to Andrew Tate than to someone who believes that the best version of a man is a woman. What we should be telling young men, what I will and do teach my sons, is that a man has a noble calling to protect and to provide. He is uniquely equipped to fulfill this role and was made by God for that purpose. He is a protector. He is a provider. That's what a man is supposed to be. That is what every man is supposed to be, every single one. And any man who is not that, who is not doing that, will, will, will fall into despair because he is useless. And the worst thing that a man can be or feel is useless. Nearly every man who has committed suicide, and the suicide rate among young men is increasing. And nearly all of them, it's, it's in part because that's how they felt about themselves, useless. There's no point to their life, nothing for them to do. So this is what a man is made to be. And most men are meant to find the ultimate fulfillment and expression of that role of protector and provider in the family as father and husband. Not all men, though. Some men are called to serve in another way. But all are called to serve. All are meant to live their lives in service to something greater than themselves. No man is meant to live aimlessly, wandering from place to place, motivated merely by the drive to satisfy his desires from one moment to the next. No man can find fulfillment in that life, but that is the life many are condemned to because they've never been shown another way. Because because the, the cultural powers that be have decided that we're not allowed to show them another way. Our culture tells men that they're not called to do anything in particular, that their sex should have no bearing on what they do or how they interact with the world. And we call this freedom. But it's the sort of freedom you give to a man in the desert by taking away his compass and his map. You take that all away and you say, yeah, see, you're free now to wander and go nowhere and die. That's not freedom, that's despair, which are two things that are very often conflated these days. Is it any mystery that these wandering men would so eagerly follow the first guy who comes along and seems to know where he's going? If his map isn't as reliable as he thinks or claims, well, it's better than no map at all. Because if you're completely lost You might as well follow whoever claims to know the way. Even if he takes you in circles, you won't be any worse off. And at least you'll have some company for a while. We cannot push away all of the people who are trying to guide these young men only to replace their voices with silence. Because that is simply abandonment. And we have abandoned young men for far too long. Now let's get to our headlines. If you're looking to upgrade your style this year without breaking the bank, then check out the True Classic tees. For a limited time only, my audience can get 25% off True Classic tees with code Walsh at trueclassic.com. Whether you're at the gym or on a first date, you can never go wrong with a True Classic tee. No, matter, uh, no more boxy fit or loose collars, True Classic fits a bit tighter in the chest and sleeves, but leaves more room in the torso for a relaxed t-shirt feel. Uh, But True Classic is more than just a t-shirt company. They offer an entire activewear line and they just released new button downs uh, shirts as well. You can build your entire wardrobe with True Classics. True Classic has a 100% risk-free guarantee with a 30-day return policy with 200,000 five-star reviews. It's no wonder these shirts are quickly becoming a menswear go-to. Get 25% off at trueclassic.com with code Walsh. That's 25% off with code Walsh at trueclassic.com. Free shipping is included with purchases over $100. NBC News headline, McCarthy makes concessions heading into third day of House voting for Speaker. Article says, fierce Republican infighting over who should be the next Speaker has paralyzed, paralyzed the House of Representatives, preventing lawmakers from being sworn in, delaying staff hiring, and stalling the GOP's legislative agenda. On Thursday, the House enters its third day of the new Congress without a Speaker under the new House, uh, new GOP majority. Until Republicans have enough votes for a candidate, all other House business remains at a standstill. During these six speaker uh, votes this week, 20 conservatives have stuck together to deny GOP leader Kevin McCarthy of California the 218 votes needed to win the speaker's gavel. Because Republicans won a paper-thin majority in November, nearly all of their 222 members will need to agree on a pick for speaker. The chaotic process moves to a seventh ballot when the House reconvenes at noon uh, on Thursday. But while McCarthy allies and foes remained deadlocked on Wednesday, there were some real signs of progress. After the sixth vote failed, McCarthy and his most trusted allies huddled with his most fervent opponents for more than two hours in the first floor Capitol Office of Majority Whip, uh, in the first floor Capitol Office of Majority Whip, Tom Emmer. Most emerged from the meeting saying that there was incremental progress. Okay. Now, I have the same uh, opinion about this that I had yesterday, which is that, and I'll have the same opinion tomorrow if this continues in the day after. Um, which is that Kevin McCarthy is a milk toast establishment shill, just an empty sort of nobody, a nothing, and uh, you and, and you could literally put anything or anyone in his place, and you'd have the same results, if not better. Um, and so he deserves to be enduring this humiliation, and I hope that they keep it up. I hope this continues for another month. I hope it goes. I hope it goes forever. I do, not because the story is interesting. It really isn't interesting at all. As I said yesterday, nobody cares about this drama outside of D.C. and political pundits. You know, no one is, no one is, uh, uh, I mean, you walk up to any average person on the street and you say, hey, uh, what do you think about this Kevin McCarthy saga? They're going to say, uh, Kevin who? What is it? Oh, well, uh, there's this guy, Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be Speaker of the House and he's not winning the votes. Isn't that fascinating? It's not fascinating. It, it really is. I got to say this again to pundits and uh, DC media, this is not that interesting. Okay, you can keep using words. This is this has never happened in history. Oh, okay. There are a lot of boring things that haven't happened in history, and then they happen, and they're still boring. So that's not that's not why I wanted to continue. It's not because I find this so absorbing and fascinating. Uh, I wanted to continue because number one, it is, uh, and most importantly, it is a vote of no confidence in the establishment. That's really what this is. This is a, at least a small select group of Republicans who are saying, we have no confidence in these people and we're not just gonna get in line because that's what you do. That's really the whole argument, right? It's, it, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the votes and there's, he's not, he's not. it's not like he's been selected by God to be speaker of the house. This is not something that's written in the stars, all right? He doesn't have the votes. So the whole what what argument is there for the the, the Republicans who aren't backing down? Why should they? They don't want him, and they're supposed to vote for who they want. They don't want him, so they're not going to vote for him. The only argument against them and in favor of them standing down and getting a line is just that, like, this is the establishment. That's what you're supposed to do. This is just what you're supposed to do. This is what people do in this situation. Well, that's not a good enough argument. And I think that is increasingly becoming not a very, that, that is not a compelling argument to people anymore. In fact, that argument cuts the other way. Because when normal people hear, well, this is how it's always done in D.C. But without any other context, a normal person hears that and says, well, then like, we probably should be doing it differently. I don't even know what it is you're talking about. It's probably, it probably is not the way it should be done. The other thing I like about this, too, is that it's... um. Is that it? it it's grinding uh, the House of Representatives, and then to a large extent the legislative branch of the federal government in, to a standstill, which is what we keep hearing. All this panicking about we can't do anything. We're not able to. We're not able to do anything. We're, we're, we can't hire staff, and what about the committee assignments and everything? Uh, where the lawmakers can't even be sworn in, and there's all this frantic panicking over it. And it's the same kind of panicking that you hear every time we're. Uh, coming up on the precipice of a government shutdown and it's the same sort of, what are we going to do if the government shuts down? But then it happens and you look around and you realize it doesn't matter. Nothing changes. So the House of Representatives has has been ground to a standstill. So what? What difference has that made? It has made no difference. And that's what they don't want you to see. They don't want you to notice that. That's the main reason why they're always so paranoid about government shutdowns. It's not because there are services the government's providing that they really feel passionate that they want to continue providing those services. It's more that they don't want you to notice. They don't want you to notice that you don't notice it when the government shuts down, that your life continues as normal. It's the same mentality, it's the same reason why somebody who's working, you know, if you work in an office or something and you know that your job is redundant and useless and you know that you don't really do anything around here. Well, you're going to be very afraid to take a vacation because you don't want your bosses to notice that when you leave and you're not even here, nothing changes. You don't want them to notice that. So uh, you're, you're going to be reluctant to take the vacation. It's the same thing happening right now. They don't want, they don't want us to notice that when it's ground to a standstill, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. Our lives continue as normal. Because even when this is all settled, whether it's settled today or tomorrow in a year from now, you know, uh, they, they, then it's, uh, well, now the House of Representatives can get down to business. What is that business exactly? What, what is it that you people do? So you can hurry up and just do nothing? So I think this is all great. All right. Um, speaking of great, this is a great headline from the College Fix. The UW-Madison Liberals Physically Sick and Hurt by Matt Walsh Event. Now- I say this is great, but it's really not. I I hate to think that I had this effect on people. I don't, I don't, I'm a, you know this about me. I'm a very sensitive person. And uh, I want everyone to be happy when they, I can't even say that with a straight face. Uh, I can say anything with a straight face. And I couldn't say that. University of Wisconsin-Madison students, faculty, and staff feared a conservative event, event that criticized gender ideology represented a hate crime against women and would hate crime against women So this is an event. Really, it's what is a woman college tour. And my whole sort of point is that women exist. And that's a hate crime against women. To say that women exist is to commit a hate crime against them. I'm committing a hate crime against women by affirming their existence. Okay. Um, And would promote violence against LGBT individuals according to documents obtained by the College Fix. The Fix recently obtained bias incident reports through a public records request for complaints made against the Young Americans for Freedom event featuring Matt Walsh. The event was about transgenderism and shared a name with his What Is A Woman movie. Students, staff, and professors were left angry, hurt, physically sick at the thought of him coming to campus based on complaints primarily filed before the event. The documentary highlights the problems with gender ideology was released by The Daily Wire the conservative commentator in 2022. The October 24th event sparked protests, and Dean of uh, Students Christina Olstad released an official message through Instagram that condemned Walsh as harmful. Um, and anyway, we knew about a lot of this. How, we're, we're, let's get to the complaints. Okay, so these are the actual bias incident reports that were filed, and the public records request, and so now this is being released. And here's what one student, is a male student who complained, I feel the movie is better described as a hate crime against women especially transgender women, in a video form. So let me translate that first sentence. This is a hate crime against women, especially men, in a video form. This is a hate crime against women, especially those women who are not women, in particular is what he's saying. I believe by allowing YAF to host this event, they're not only spreading hatred across campus, I think they're also in violation of a few RSO policies and will create a potentially unsafe environment similar to similar events hosted at other universities. The same student felt physically sick while researching the movie. Upon researching this documentary, I found a wealth of evidence that this has clear themes of transphobia, misogyny, racism, ableism, and ageism. Ableism and ageism, where is that in the film? Okay, I know where the transphobia is. Where did we get to the ageism? I mean, I interviewed an, an older man. Is that ageism? So I, I talked to Don Sucker. It, uh, it was a great interview. So I guess just by by talking to him, I'm committing ageism. I don't know. It has created a great upset within LGBTQ spaces on campus. Many of us feel unsafe and frustrated that campus is allowing an RSO to put on this event. Um, And then uh, we'll see other complaints. There was another complaint that said, allowing for such a transphobic speaker to be present on campus with such a large platform shows queer, trans, and non-binary students, staff, and faculty that their experiences are not valid and their persons are not safe. Their persons are not safe. Um, I am angry and hurt that the community I love, which, was a, which has a home here on the women and gender studies department floor, was so blatantly attacked. A gender studies professor named Finn Enke also submitted a complaint. The speaker is known not only to target gender and sexual minorities as well as women, the YAF is known to intentionally inflame and draw a response from marginalized and feminist communities. Um, I don't feel safe anymore, so on and so forth. Okay. You know, all this panicking it went on. And, and uh, they, every, every every campus that I went through, they're panicking over my presence. But now we can look back and we see in hindsight that I went through that entire college store, tour. We, we stopped at, I don't know, seven or eight different campuses. And I only murdered three people the entire time. Okay, that was less, okay, fewer Then one person per campus did I murder. And yet, all of this over that, I practically didn't kill anybody, except for the three that I did. Killed them, straight up killed them by saying my opinions right into their faces. I just said my opinions and they were in the audience and the opinion went into their ear and they just, they dropped dead. Only happened three times. Um, In reality, of course, this is when I see this kind of thing, what what I see is it's not. I, I, I think this is this is always wrongly described by people on the right as well. They're being oversensitive. They're being snowflakes, as I've explained many times. That's not the right term here. We should stop calling this sens- sensitivity. This is not sensitivity. Uh, many of these people are sociopaths. They they sensitive is the last of their problems. Okay, they don't have a problem with being sensitive. A sensitive person is is has, has if anything is is like overly empathetic. You know, has has an overabundance of empathy. That's what a truly sensitive person is. And of all the flaws you can have, like that's not the worst. Um, it's a pretty good flaw to have actually. To be a truly sensitive person, is this is not a problem that I struggle with. But to be a truly sensitive person, and I know some people like this. You know, truly sensitive is, is like it's like you, you you yeah your your feelings are easily hurt, but at the same time. Uh, You have a lot of empathy, and your feelings easily get hurt on behalf of other people because you care a lot about other people. That is not this, okay? These people, that is not their issue. They don't care about other people at all. They only care about themselves. This is their fragile ego that they're concerned about and nothing else. But also, it's a recognition of the frailty and fragility of not only their egos, but of their belief system. That's that's what this actually is, that they, at some level— whether they want to or not, they recognize um, that their entire belief system is is, a, is just a pile of sand, and that it can be blown away um, with the slightest breeze. They recognize that it's uh, you know a house of cards, whatever metaphor you want to use here. They recognize that um, it, it cannot withstand the slightest challenge. And so their only move, well, there'd be two moves. There are two two possible responses. When you realize that your worldview, your belief system is utterly frail and weak and cannot withstand any scrutiny at all, there are two possible directions you can go. One is to confront that reality and then say, well, I guess there's a problem with my worldview and I better start to reassess. That's a really scary thing to do. And most of these people don't have the courage for that. It takes courage. Okay, to be very, very wrong about something, and especially about something that is so fundamental, and then and then to to realize that and not run from it, and to be willing to reassess that takes moral courage. Okay, Um, it's almost like you you know to go to another metaphor, mixing around this Jenga tower, and you notice that. Uh, there's one brick here that's a little bit precarious and you're willing to pull at it knowing that the entire thing might come tumbling down. That takes courage. These people don't have that courage. And so they're not going to go that direction. Instead, they're going to go the direction which is the other possible response when you realize that your worldview is fragile. The other possible response is to try to shut down and silence. And if you can't do that, then just scream at anyone who challenges you. And that, of course, is the, is the, uh, the option that they, that they choose. Okay, headline. Uh, this is a CNN headline about a truly historic glass ceiling shattering moment for the trans community. Uh, and hopefully this is something that all the people that we just, we, we heard from that were upset about my event, accusing me of transphobia. Uh, hopefully this will make them feel a little bit better. Uh, I want you know something encouraging for them. So uh, here it is. Headline is, Missouri carries out first known execution of an openly transgender person for 2003 murder. Uh, the headline says, Missouri, or the article says, Missouri carried out the first known U.S. execution of an openly transgender person Tuesday when Amber McLaughlin, who was convicted of a 2003 murder and unsuccessfully sought clemency from the governor, was put to death by lethal injection. McLaughlin was pronounced dead at 6.51 p.m., the Missouri Department of Corrections said in a written statement. A spokesperson did not say if McLaughlin had issued a final statement. McLaughlin's execution, the first in the U.S. this year, is unusual. Executions of women in the United States are already rare. And they remain just as rare as they were before this man was executed. Um, it says prior to McLaughlin's execution, just 17 had been put to death since 1976, when the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty after a brief suspension. And uh, so, anyway, this is uh, this is a transgender person, and this is the headlines are all over the place saying that that and, and before he was executed, we we kept hearing that there, the state of Missouri is about to execute a, a, a trans person for the first time, and. Most of the the headlines, especially mainstream publications, they were careful to not go all the way and explicitly state their argument, which is that this person should not have been executed at all because they're trans. Like the trans should have been a, a, a get out of execution free card. That was obviously what was implied by all the headlines. All the frantic headlines say they're about to execute the first trans person. Clearly what they're trying to say is that we shouldn't do it because the person is trans. Uh, But most of the articles in CNN and New York Times, they didn't didn't come out completely and say that clearly. That was the implication. But in any case, this is true inclusion. This is equity in action, folks. So congratulations to Amber for her, his rather I should say, achievement. Extremely well deserved. Extremely well deserved. Uh, This was a person who, by the way, this is you know when you when you anytime you read articles about someone who's executed, um, rarely anyway. Do they lead off? As they should by telling you what this person did. You always have, you always have to read through. You read how sad it all is the person executed, and then like fifteen paragraphs down, you finally get to the oh by the way this is what this monstrous scumbag did to deserve this. And in this case, um, so-called Amber McLaughlin, and I'm not sure what his real name was. This this was a the the transition happened on death row, quote unquote transition. So it, it doesn't say what his real name is here, but so we'll just go with this fake name, Amber. He uh, a, a murdered, brutally murdered his, I believe it was his ex-girlfriend in 2003. And before that, in the 90s, had been arrested and charged and gone to prison for raping a 14-year-old girl. So this is a child rapist murderer. And yet we're supposed to be upset somehow. That he is no longer with us. Now, I will say that I I made this same comment on Twitter about this being a glass ceiling shattering moment. Um, God forbid I make light of the execution of a monstrous child raping scumbag murderer, and I, I did that on Twitter. And and some people on the left, trans activists, were very very upset with me. In fact, there's an account. Uh, Reddit Lies is the account, and it compiles examples of people saying crazy things on Reddit. And so apparently on one of these forums, the uh, trans activists and leftists are wishing death on me. Nothing new about that. I mean, they wish death on me every day. But they're wishing death on me in this case specifically because I was celebrating the execution and making light of the execution of, again, a child raping, murdering piece of garbage. So here's a couple uh, comments from this Reddit forum. If Matt Walsh was murdered, it would make my day. At this point, I'm so sick of that repulsive effer that I have no issue wishing death on him. Someone else agrees. I wish someone would just effing redacted this guy already, murder me. Um, World would be a better place. Someone else, dude just needs a good old-fashioned ass-beating. Bonus points if he gets beat up by a trans man. It would be so effing dank. Uh, Who says dank anymore? Is that really? Is that an expression that the kids are using? No matter how that person identified, they were convicted murder and rapist. So yeah, had it coming. Okay, well, this is, this is one person that has uh, this is one moment of sanity in this Reddit forum. One person pointing out that, okay, yeah, this is a trans person who murdered and raped people. Someone else says, referring again to me now, I hope all his skin falls off. That's creative. I want to kill him with an aluminum bat. And once again, just to remind you, they are talking about me here. Not the uh, not the rapist and murderer.
1: Um,
0: that bat should have a rusty nail. So that now and now there's a little, okay. So then, so someone says that they want to kill me with a wooden bat, and then and then there's this little conversation, this back and forth, where they're kind of brainstorming all the different methods that they could use. Uh, you know, it should be a rusty bat. They should there should be a nail in it. And this is in defense, once more of a child raping murderer. That's what they're upset about. Okay, one other headline here. It's something else uh, from last week that I wanted to cover and well, I wasn't here so I couldn't. Um, mention it now though, Fox News headline, Buffalo police arrested 10 for looting amid the deadly winter storm. Officials in Buffalo, New York said Wednesday, this was last Wednesday night, that 10 arrests have been made in response to looting following a deadly winter storm that ravaged the region over the Christmas weekend. The Buffalo Police Department said the arrests were conducted by its newly created anti-looting task force. The group was formed after reports of break-ins to businesses as the storm halted daily life in the city. Um, On Tuesday, Buffalo Police Commissioner uh, Joseph Gramaglia Warned that looting would not be tolerated. This isn't people stealing food and medicine and diapers. He said they're destroying stores. They're stealing television, couches, whatever else they can get their hands on. They're opportunists. He said at a press conference. So, um, that was for the major winter storm last week, and uh, and we had you know we got down to negative temperatures here in Nashville, negative two degrees. Other places the, the weather was even worse, and this led to looting. But don't worry. Because what we learned from some leftists on TikTok is that uh, the looters had every right to do what they did. They had every right to exploit and take advantage uh, of this situation, as they so often do. And um, here's one TikToker explaining why.
1: So I live in Buffalo. This is a 33. This is my car that's been buried in all of this snow since last week. And this is outside my granny's house. A tree that's been there since my aunt was a child. Safe to say that it's a out there, right? Here go y'all goblins who don't even live in the f- city which by the way the q-tip people are the last ones to ever talk about somebody stealing anything y'all wouldn't be in this country had it not been for y'all stealing it So y'all are more focused on people looting and trying to get necessities and things that they need and yes a tv is a f- necessity thing Then the people who are literally freezing to death in their own home freezing to death outside because this city did not shut down the way it should have byron brown want to get on here and talk about we told y'all we knew this was gonna happen but why didn't you close businesses when you should have why you got everybody rushing home at noon when the you know storm is starting and now people are literally dying in their cars because they can't see and yeah it was that bad i went out like at eight o'clock in the morning before it started and by the time i got out of Wegmans right it was like maybe 9 30 10 o'clock and it was bad and that was just the beginning of the storm so if you don't live in buffalo even if you do live in buffalo you feel like you're better than because people are out here stealing and you would never first of all if you are a mayo monster that is how your ancestors got everything from stealing people are out here trying to get toilet paper people are out here trying to get you know just small little food from family dollar and y'all gotta Capitalism, steal everything that you need, babe. Because at the end of the day, this city continuously fails us whenever we have any type of emergency. Vibrant, do better.
0: Okay. Mayo monster, she calls white people, which I take exception to for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that I, um, I, I hate mayo. I was just calling for the execution of people that enjoy mayo the other day. So uh, this is no different from what we hear from the left all the time. Infamously, AOC, you know, of course, said that looters are just out stealing bread to feed their families. And yet, after the looters, as we heard from the police chief, you know, after the looters, looters run through a Walmart or Dollar General or whatever it is that they're stealing from, the bread aisle is always conspicuously left untouched. Not only are they not stealing bread, but it's like the one thing they won't steal. The one thing that they won't steal are the necessities. That that those, those are all of the, the the sections of the store that are left untouched. Um, And that's because these are not starving people who are out desperately scrounging for resources. That's not what this is. These are vultures, scavengers, victimizing their own community, exploiting a crisis to steal from their own neighbors. The the businesses that provide necessities to their own communities, they are exploiting and victimizing. And this is also something to keep in mind. You know, when you hear about so-called food deserts okay what is a what is a, a food desert Well, you think we a food desert would be like an actual desert is a food desert it's one of the things that defines a desert. It's, they're not a lot of not a lot of uh, resources of that kind but that's not what what it means when we hear about food deserts this is an effort on the left they've come up with this terminology and it's an effort to support the claim that there is still this systemic racism against black people in the United States and um, they have to get increasingly desperate when they're when they're trying to you know, find and locate this mythical phantom systemic racism. And so they end up talking about things like food deserts. And so a food desert is is you know places, especially in inner city, often in black communities, where there are not uh, there are not as many stores and restaurants and grocery stores and that sort of thing as there are in other parts of the city. That's a food desert. Although, like, Even if there were none at all, if you're living in a city, you're you're never going to be more than like a five-minute Uber ride away from some kind of store. But if there are these food deserts, if there are grocery stores and restaurants that are shutting down shop in these communities or refusing to open up in the first place, maybe this is part of the reason why. I mean, when you prey upon the businesses in your community... And you loot and rob them, then they're going to go away, and and then other potential business owners are going to look, and they you know, if you've got someone who wants to open up their own restaurant or their own grocery store, and they're trying to th- they're thinking of where should I put it. They're going to tend to put it in safer places, where they're less likely to be victimized in this way. Seems rather obvious, I realize, but you know, still needs to be pointed out. I guess. Let's get to the comment section. While today's coffee often comes with hints of soy and social justice, Black Rifle delivers an entirely different experience—bold, strong, and delicious. Black Rifle coffee is the coffee that I choose to get me through the day. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran-founded and operated. Their mission is to help service members successfully transition from the military into entrepreneurship. They provide assistance to veterans who seek to launch businesses of their own with the goal of helping more companies like Black Rifle become a reality. As for the coffee itself, well, Black Rifle sources the most exotic roasts from around the globe, all coffee is roasted here in the U.S. by veteran-led teams of coffee experts. Black Rifle has all the best brewing gear, thermoses, mugs, apparel, designed all for folks who love country and coffee. So you can go to BlackRifleCoffee.com, use promo code Walsh for 10% off coffee, coffee gear, apparel, or when you sign up for a new coffee club subscription, that's BlackRifleCoffee.com with promo code Walsh for 10% off Black Rifle Coffee, supporting veterans and America's coffee. Edward Jones says, Matt, an important thing to remember about most aged 18 plus porn consumers is their desire to remain anonymous. They won't be, they won't give identification information to a porn site for fear of it being leaked. Okay. Well, then don't just 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 don't look at porn then. <laughs> that is look, that's a perfectly valid concern. All right. Um, I wouldn't want to give my driver's license information to Pornhub. Right. And, and they, they might claim that they're well, we promise we're not going to do anything with this data. Right. Well, far be it from me to question the integrity of smut peddlers and the porn industry. But I'm not sure that I would trust that. So I get that. You know, I, I, I'm when, when I suggest these age verification, and I say that they, um, I, I'm not I'm not saying that it's actually a good idea for you to go and give your give your credit card information or your uh, you know or your driver's license information to to Pornhub. But that's that's your issue, like that's your that's your problem. It's it's uh, uh, because it, 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 the other potential solution for you is just to not go to the site, and it's not like you have some sort of God-given right. To access internet pornography without any barriers at all, that right does not exist. That is not a thing. That is not a right. Um, that is a privilege that people have had in this country for a long time and shouldn't have. And so, what this really is, it's, it's a balancing. It's a. It's a. Uh, what we're doing is we're balancing the right of children to be protected from this versus your right to access pornography as quickly as you want without giving any of your information away. So those are the two competing sort of claims here. And I'm going to say that the right of children to be protected wins out every single time without even having to think about it. Um, Cajun King says, as a citizen of the state who is of age, it's still just annoying. I ain't giving my information to a porn site. A lot of comments like this. Once again, good idea. Don't go to the porn site. It's an even better idea. Moose Chuckle says, there was once a time I would be against age verification for internet internet porn. For me, it wasn't about inconvenience. It was about the shame that I would have putting my info in. That was 20 years ago. Now I'm all for it. I have a kid and it would protect them. Furthermore, maybe a little shame is what we need to help prevent others from falling into watching and being obsessed with porn. And that's what I indicated yesterday that uh, I think the, the resistance to age verification, these very basic regulations that every other adult-oriented business is expected to abide by, the resistance against it, like intellectually, it makes no sense at all. There are no coherent arguments against it. And uh, I've always said that, you know, so what it really is, is you got, you got these people that they don't, they want to they find their masturbatory material, their masturbatory aids, and they don't want anything, you know, standing in the way. They don't, they don't want to be inconvenienced. They don't want to have to waste 30 seconds. They want to be able to get to it as quickly as possible. I think that's part of it, but then the other part is what you just said, which is there's the shame too, because even having this conversation about how kids need to be protected from it, that is to acknowledge that porn is a toxic, disgusting thing. And then having to put your information in. It's like, it's it's even if they don't steal your information or invade your privacy, it's still just it feels all the more shameful that you're going through that additional effort to access this stuff. Um, but once again, that's your issue. Uh, that, that that does not outweigh the safety concerns for children. And if you feel shame looking at porn, well, you should. It's a shameful thing. You're watching other people have sex. It's a shameful uh, voyeuristic sort of thing. Uh, let's see. Cameron says, I like this for many reasons. Think of all the people who are too lazy to get IDs before. Voter registration will skyrocket next cycle. Well, that's true. Although voter voter registration skyrocketing for me is a negative, if you are familiar with my opinion on voter turnout, which is that I think it should go down, not up. Um, Kenshin says, government needs to stay out of our lives. It should be up to the parent to monitor what their kids do online, not for the government to punish everyone by requiring ID to watch porn. This will just backfire horribly. Now we'll be able to look up who's watching and uh, use that as a weapon against them. Imagine a politician getting caught watching some extra nasty porn and his opponents using that to bribe him into passing a bill they want. <laughs> that's an interesting like plot of a movie that you just made up in your head. I'm not sure that it really qualifies as an argument, though. And governments stay, get, stay out of our lives. That's also not an argument. That is not an argument. Okay, that is a, that's, a, that's a slogan. That's something you put on a poster. It's not an argument, and it's not even a good slogan because nobody thinks that government should stay out of our lives completely unless you are an advocate of there being no government, unless you are actually an anarchist, which I'm guessing you aren't, and in fact, nobody really is because even the people that claim to be anarchists, I mean, them most of all tend to be the ones that are relying on government services and all the rest of it. So nobody's actually an anarchist. That doesn't exist. Nobody is that. Everyone agrees that there needs to be a government, that government is necessary to some extent, It's just a question of what should they be doing. You know, in what scenarios, in what ways should they be um, uh, stepping in and interfering in our lives, if you want to put it that way. That's the question. It's not a question of if, it's a question of in what scenario, when, you know, that's, that's the debate. So, of all the things that government should, there are a lot of things government does that it shouldn't do. But when we list the things that the government should do, Is protecting children from the multi-billion dollar smut peddling industry, does that make the list of things government should do? And I would say absolutely yes. Snooky G says, the thing about the Damar Hamlin incident is, unless you're a family member who is solely focused on his well-being, holding multiple thoughts about the situation seems completely normal. It's like seeing a car accident and after the ambulance carries off the horribly injured person, wondering how the uninjured people are going to get home. This is interesting because I almost made this exact point, and I didn't because I had been talking about it for too long already, and I didn't want to draw it out. But uh, this is just another way of illustrating the point from yesterday. I I 100% agree with you, and I think about this all the time. It's like, um, you know, anytime there's a tragic event, you always have, we don't have to review everything we talked about yesterday, but you have the the outrage mob, and they're out there. They've got these booby traps set up, and uh, they're looking for anyone to step on it so that they can then, you know, pounce on them and virtue signal and so many of these rules are kind of structured around this idea that when the tragedy happens, um, you're not allowed to like talk about anything else for a, an arbitrary period of time. You're not allowed to have any other concerns related to that tragic event, uh, other than just simply saying how tragic it is. And and that's that's the rules they they set up. And yet, we know that that's just not like nobody operates that way. We know that in the face of tragedy and horrific events. We very often have other concerns, including logistical concerns. So Skip Bayless, a couple days ago, was mentioning the issue of how are they going to reschedule the game? It's a logistical concern. It's not more important in the person's life, but it's a logistical concern. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a It's a. normal thing to think about. I wondered the same thing. Everyone else wondered it. And, and before you get on your high horse about that, just think about all the times, as you point out, Snooki G, think about all the times that you have been stuck in traffic because of a horrific accident. And for all you know, someone is dead. And if they're not dead, they're at least terribly injured. And their life has been irrevocably changed. And you're sitting in traffic. And you're very sad about that. But you're also looking at your clock because you're worried that you're going to be late to your appointment. You're going to be late to work. You're going to be late to getting home. You're going to be late to you know, making it out to Applebee's. Like, who, who has done that before? Every single human who has ever been in traffic has had that situation, has had that experience. Where a terrible thing has happened, you're sad about that. Um, but you're also, you're, you have other thoughts as well, and you're even concerned about the logistics as well. So like, we've all been through that. Yet there's this game of, even though it's a thought we've all had, uh, someone makes a mistake of expressing that thought out loud, and then we all pretend to be offended by this thing that we all know we've thought ourselves. That's the game. It's a new year, but uh, leftist companies are still up to their same old dirty tricks. Ladies, it's time to help you guys wash out the woke once and for all with Jeremy's Razors, Uh, new line of men's staples. And uh, he'll love the tea tree and argon oil-infused shampoo and conditioner, exfoliating charcoal body wash, or if he's a soap traditionalist who prefers something to hold up, uh, hold on to the oatmeal and citrus soap scrub uh, will work as well. They smell great. They're made right here in the USA by a men's grooming company that doesn't hate men. Imagine that. Shop the new Jeremy's Hair, Face, and Body Wash collection and kick woke out of the bathroom. And when you visit the store, do it through my URL, so uh, I get the referral bragging rights as well, which is very important. So go to dailywire.com/walsh. Treat your man to some great Jeremy's Razors products today. That's dailywire.com/walsh. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. <music> One thing we've all learned is that there is nothing worse than a national dialogue. Very often after a tragedy or scandal of some kind, we're told by the media that it's time for a national dialogue. Sometimes the dialogue is about gun violence or hate or homophobia or sexism or mental health. And it's always the media that announces this dialogue and the media that proceeds to have the dialogue, a dialogue that always turns out to be more of a monologue. The media talks about the subject and we're all supposed to listen. That's how the dialogues are always meant to go. So this week, we, and and by we, I mean they, the media, have been having another dialogue. And this one is about violence in football in light of the DeMar Hamlin incident. Yesterday, reporters even tried to get the president of the United States to chime in on this subject of violence in football. But they were rebuffed due to the fact that the president of the United States is, well, a vegetable. Listen. Do you think the NFL is getting
1: too dangerous?
0: No, look. The idea that you're going to have, you got guys that are 6'8", 340 pounds, running uh, 4'8", 40. I mean, you know, you you hit somebody with that kind of force. Now, that's not what happened here. But I I just think it's, uh, I don't know how you avoid it. Ah, well, he has a point. It's impossible to say what his point is, but I'm sure he has one. Over on The View, uh, the football expert sitting around the table had a slightly, only slightly, more coherent conversation about the topic, but still very stupid. Here it is.
1: Right? I mean, my kid played football. He was recruited for college, and he got a terrible hamstring injury getting hit and um, I saw him collapse so to the ground, yeah. <laughs> thank you. And um, he went through physical therapy for six months mm-hmm. and he realized at that point, uh-oh, I could, that could happen to my brain. Yeah. And so he quit and oh, it was, he did, a, he, did. he quit. Yeah. And it was a very hard thing for him yeah. because, he loved doing it yeah. um, and I but I don't think it's going to turn people away from the sport because I mean no. I went to Notre Dame It's like faith family yeah. football. It's, yeah. a, it's a big deal and it's a hundred and five billion dollar industry Yeah, so, only forty-five percent of Americans think that ta- tackle football is appropriate wow. uh, ha- Heterosexual men voted the most support for kids uh, Doing football mm-hmm. and conservatives were more likely to support youth tackle football. Just saying
0: Just saying Heterosexual men enjoy football, so it must be bad. With a take like that, Joe Behar, Joy Behar may, uh, may have just earned herself a, a show on ESPN, actually. Meanwhile, the news media has contributed to the national dialogue with headlines like these. Fans grapple with football's violent pull after Hamlin collapse. And we're all complicit in the NFL's violent spectacle. And then the terrifying collapse of Damar Hamlin and the everyday violence of football. But the first place prize for insufferability has to go to the Washington Post article, which is titled, After the Hoopla, All That's Left is the NFL's Violence. This is written by a woman named Robin Givon, who has likely never actually seen a football game and couldn't discern a first down from a field goal. But the piece begins with this paragraph. From a distance, from outside the circle of fans and aficionados, professional football is both confounding and enraging. It's America's most popular sport, and it's also deliberately, unspeakably violent. It's a particular kind of violence that's less about accidental collisions, adrenaline-fueled fistfights, or even a singular articulated blow. Football violence is wrapped up in machismo, militarism, swagger, and patriotism. It isn't a sport that thrives despite the violence, but because of it. Now, she's exactly right about the last couple of sentences there, and that's precisely what makes football so great. She goes on for many other uh, paragraphs, continuing to criticize football in terms that just make it sound all the more appealing to many of us, especially many of us men. She says, football is a particularly American sport, although it certainly has fans in other countries, notably in Germany, Britain, and Canada. But the NFL doesn't have the sort of international rosters that one finds among the nation's baseball and basketball teams. There is no American football World Cup. Football is America's violence. In football, the, player wears the wear, players wear their helmets and pads to provide them some protection. But all that gear is also a recognition that the game is, in fact, predicated on men injuring other men. They give each other a bruising. They put a hurt on each other. They go to war. Americans love their football. They're loyal to their favorite teams. Fans admire football players' athleticism, their impressively complex tactics, and the competitive spirit of a Super Bowl. But in the last decade, much of the romanticism that once surrounded football has disintegrated to more clearly reveal the racism in the corporate offices, the sexism within the culture, and the enduring physical pain of the game. All that's left is the violence. And Americans settle into their seats for that. They tailgate in anticipation of their volatile pastime. This orchestrated pummeling of another team, the walloping of another person, the winner's victory is a violent one. So to review. Um, football is violent, macho, militaristic, brutal, patriotic, and uniquely American. This is supposed to be an argument against football, but it ends up being a better advertisement for football than anything the NFL would come up with these days. Hey, that is a better NFL advertisement than any NFL advertisement I have seen in 10 years. that's the funny thing here is that the media is discovering football's violence at precisely the moment that the NFL is doing everything it can to neuter and feminize the sport and make it less violent. Professional football, in fact, has never been less violent than it is right now. And yet now is the time when reporters are asking the president whether football is becoming too dangerous. Now, whatever else you might say about the sport, there is no doubt that it is actually becoming every year significantly less dangerous, for better or worse. But even with all the additional focus on safety, And the new rules introduced every year to make the sport less physical and less brutal. Um, Still, it remains a sport, a contact sport. And so injuries are possible. Serious injuries are also possible. Fatal injuries are extremely unlikely and incredibly rare, but still possible. Anybody with a brain knew this already. Every player knows this. We have all always been aware of the possibility, which is why it doesn't make sense to engage in some sort of fundamental reassessment of the sport when the possible thing, which we all knew was possible happens. Damar Hamlin is a tragic occurrence. It's not new information though. It's the sort of thing that everyone knows can happen. And so when it does happen, it just doesn't make any sense to say, well, we got to reassess all of this. It's like if, if, there's a, if there's a terrible car accident and somebody dies in the car, Damar Hamlin, thank God, is, has is, didn't die and, and is, is, has survived so far. But if there's a terrible car accident, and you're sad about the car accident, it doesn't make any sense to say, well, now we have to reassess and, 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 and rethink everything about the highway system. Well, it's like, well, we always knew. What, why would this? You always knew that there were accidents. So why is this causing you to think differently about it? But putting that aside for a moment, and even putting the NFL aside, let's consider football itself as a sport. Despite any rule changes or updates to the equipment, it is still a fundamentally violent sport. That's true. And, and, and that's what it always will be. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not. In fact, it is a good and healthy thing. It is good that football is violent. It should stay violent. It is good to have violent sports. Okay? We should have violent sports. If anything, we should have more of them. Because a violent sport like football is, among other things, a relatively safe, relatively safe, and relatively productive outlet for male energy and aggression. Okay, there's a reason why many of the media articles being written and freaking out about football are being written by women. Because football is not, no matter what the NFL is trying to do, football is not for women. There might be some women who who get into it, but it's not really for women. It's not for you. You don't understand it. You're not meant to understand it. This is actually a man's thing. This is why violent games have existed in every society going back to primitive times. They are a means of channeling and harnessing male aggression. Part of the reason any boy or young man starts playing football is that he enjoys the contact, the violence, the opportunity to hit someone. Yes, that is one of the things that is going to drive a boy to play football to begin with, is that he wants to hit someone. Boys enjoy violence. They do. That might make your tummy hurt to think about. You might put your uh, hand on your forehead and faint over the thought that boys enjoy violence. It doesn't change the fact that they do. Boys naturally enjoy violence. My sons are constantly wrestling and beating the hell out of each other for fun. My daughters never do that with each other. My boys do it all the time. They love when I join in and wrestle with them as well, which I often do. It's what guys do. It's how we're wired. In football or in any number of similar sports, a boy learns to channel that energy according to the rules and the playbook and in service to a greater good, which is the team. Now, they're not out fighting for their country. They aren't actually warriors on a battlefield. There isn't much really at stake. It's just a game, sure. But the focus on the team, working towards a common goal, utilizing that violent energy in a disciplined and targeted way between the whistles, between the sidelines, this is all very good. We need to have outlets like this. We need to have ways for young men to harness and use that brutal, masculine, violent energy that scares Washington Post columnist and Joy Behar. The problem, though, is that we are steadily removing all such outlets from society. We're giving boys fewer and fewer opportunities to be rambunctious and violent in controlled and productive environments. Instead, we attempt to suppress those tendencies entirely and feminize them, but it doesn't work. It never will. And we again and again react with horror when the male aggression we've been trying to suppress, and which has, which has few healthy outlets for expression anymore, spills out in far more dangerous and destructive and chaotic ways, on street corners, in classrooms, etc. Here's the fact of the matter. You will never have a society without violent men. It cannot exist. It never will. The only question is whether men will be given constructive avenues for channeling and using that aggression or not. If you choose not, there will be a price to pay. We are already paying it. And that is why the people trying to cancel football are instead themselves today canceled. That'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. And you can become a member and use code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you over there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.